Welcome back, my fellow creatives, to Story Cuppings, where we take a sip from a tale of fantasy or fiction and see whether or not we enjoy these flavors or if we're going to be putting the cup back down and saying no thank you. For we as picky readers and working writers don't got no time for do not finish. <laughs> we just, we don't have time for that. We're just, we're going to go take a look at the first chapter. If we don't like it, moving on. So I hope you're ready to start a new month with me. Uh, considering it's Private Eye July, I thought I'd see what mysteries with a little fantastical flair I could share with you. And there was one I had actually picked up from the library a little while ago that I got on a complete whim because of its title and the inspiration for it. And I thought, well, this fits, this fits beautifully to July's mystery focus. And the title is called Meddling Kids. And if you're like me, and you grew up on stuff like Scooby-Doo or the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew or any of that. This, this is going to connect with something inside. <laughs> um, I think I'm actually going to read the dust, dust jacket blurb to you first. Uh, just to help you get a feel for what I mean as far as like Scooby-Doo type things. The summer of 1977, the Blighton Summer Detective Club of Blighton Hills, a small mining town in Oregon's Zoinks River Valley, <laughs> solved their final mystery and unmasked the elusive Sleepy Lake Monster, another low-life fortune hunter trying to get his dirty hands on the legendary riches hidden in Des Moines Mansion. And he would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for those meddling kids. 1990, the former detectives have grown up and apart, each haunted by disturbing memories of their final night in the old haunted house. There are too many strange, half-remembered encounters and events that cannot be dismissed or explained away by a guy in a mask. And Andy, the once intrepid tomboy, now wanted in two states, is tired of running from her demons. She needs answers. To find them, she will need Carrie, the one-time kid genius and budding biologist, now drinking her ghosts away in New York with Tim, an excitable Weimariner descendant. Weimariner? Weimariner. That is a weird word I have not had to encounter. Okay. Descended from the original canine member of the club. They will also have to get Nate the horror nerd currently residing in an asylum in Arkham, Massachusetts. Luckily, Nate has not lost contact with Peter, the handsome jock turned movie star who was once their team leader, which is remarkable considering Peter has been dead for years. The time has come to get the team back together, face their fears, and find out what actually happened all those years ago at Sleepy Lake. It's their only chance to end the nightmares and perhaps save the world. I mean, who can turn down a story like this? Oh my heavens, it's all the joy of all those different Scooby-Doo shows. And it just, 
Because even as a little kid, I would watch the pup named Scooby-Doo when you see, you know, the little versions of them running around. And now it's like, oh, the grown-up versions. Brilliant. No, I didn't watch the movies. Nor have my children. <laughs> Why? Because we raised them on the original stuff. Okay. So let's dive in here. Uh, the opening page as a sort of pro Ooh. I just got to say this publisher is actually connected to Bloomhouse, which are a horror film production company. So that tells me before I even read a word, we're probably going to get into some vicious or some pretty, I, I don't want to say gory outright, but these are people who like putting out horror suspense thriller type material so if this book was not meeting those standards bloomhouse wouldn't put it out so that's a good sign to me so looking past that we have here a newspaper clipping uh with the headline teen sleuths unmask sleepy lake monster unofficial investigation ends in dramatic showdown at des moines mansion Blighton Hills heroes expose local legend, uncover criminal plot. And so there's very teeny text under the picture, but the picture shows, you know, the ragtag bunch of teens and the dog and the villain in a net on the ground making his scowly face and the sheriff politely standing off to the side. <laughs> and... And the quote from the criminal, I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you meddling kids. Let's actually look at the first page. It starts when you pull the lamp chain and light doesn't come. Then you know you will never wake up in time. You will not make it to the end of this paragraph alive. Desperate, reassuring thoughts try to rise over the panic in your head. It's okay. You don't need lights. You are practically awake already. You are laying in your bed. You can guess. You are laying on your bed. I'm sorry. You can guess the familiar shape of the side lamp in the morning twilight and hear the old radiator clunking in the night. You are safe. It's just that the lamp doesn't work. But you want it to work. You need to dispel the darkness and let certainty outline the room so the things outside know you're awake and won't dare enter. And you pull the chain again and again, and you recall the lamps which has failed before. Has it? And look, the light bulb really is trying, though it barely manages to seep a wane glow, and it's not enough to flash the room out of the shadows. But who needs more, the lamp says. You're here. This is your room. I am your lamp. That's your radiator going clunk in the night. That's the same old closed door beyond which things might lurk and breathe, skinless and eyeless. But you can rest. We promise we don't exist, really. Lie down. Or are you lying down? Because you think you're up on your elbows, but your arms aren't feeling the weight now that you focus on them. In fact, your eyeballs are not moving. And then as you try to say, hey, but your throat isn't responding either, so you cling to the sheets. Do you? Are your fingernails truly scratching the linens? And you struggle to emit a sound. Emit your vocal, make your vocal cords vibrate. Push some air through your windpipe. Just feel your fucking windpipe for 
God's sake, shout and wake up the slumbering blob that is you on your bed, sleeping, dreaming at the mercy of drooling things outside the closed door, and you pull, 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 pull the chain, and the lamp insists, I can't, it's a technical fault, but I promise you, you're awake. Look at me, I'm your good old lamp. I've never lied to you. The chain has failed on and off, and that's before you know this, you should install a real switch. You can snap on and off, and that's when you realize your bedside lamp never had a chain. Furthermore, there's no radiator in the room that can go clunk. It's their footsteps clunk. And the door is already open. Try to shout. They're in your room. Try to shout. They're creeping up your bed. Clunk. Stretching toward you. Clunk. Squamous. Ice-cold webbed fingers aiming for your spine. Try to shout! Her own scream woke her up. Ooh, I'm just gonna pause right there. Cause, uh, that's fun. This first, I, I know that's one of the great no-no's of writing. Don't write in second person. And yeah, some people have made it work, which is fine. And I do like on how after the first paragraph, we do see we are no longer in second person. Did I say first person before? I am so sorry. I am very tired, but I was determined to talk about this book. Yes, the first paragraph here we have in second person. Normally people do not recommend doing this. Very few people toy around with this setup. And I understand why, because it can get pretty repetitive pretty quickly. The bonus, though, of making this first paragraph second person is that it thrusts the reader into an uncertain setting. Because we even know the narrator is already very clearly uncertain, unstable. And we are being forced to be uncertain and unstable as well, which adds a very fun layer of tension to this first paragraph, especially because nighttime, nightmares, trying to cope with being in the dark, these are all very common nightmarish things that we as readers can relate to, not just as adults, but as children as well. This is a universal fear of the dark that is connecting with us here. And especially considering the details that are beyond universal, that are beyond normal, the, um, where was that? The description of the things, oh yes, uh, the same old closed door behind, beyond which things might lurk and breathe, skinless and eyeless. That is truly unsettling. That is truly horrifying because something without skin or eyes, we immediately find our imaginations running into the worst corners. <laughs> of our dark psyches and we are terrified and that terror just feeds right into the narrator's description of this character's terror that we are experiencing with them so let's keep going now and see whose terror we are dealing with her own scream woke her up 
It probably woke the whole block, really. She could still hear it resonating in the shoebox width of the room while her racing heart geared down from sprint to marathon and senses swept her surroundings, checking up on reality. Of course this is your room, you dimwit. Look at how cold and smelly and dampened by bureaucratic rain-pattering faraway sirens it is. It had not been a bad dream, Carrie judged by the echoes of it. Not so much an eek, a mouse, kind of a shrill, as a strong, hard-boiled, holy mother of fuck. Tim's grave, silent stare seemed to confirm it. On really bad nights, she would wake up to the dog on the bed, barking away the nightmares. Today, he was just sitting by, eyes level and fixed on her, and at ease, soldier, expression on his face. She sat up in her unheated room, lit by the TV static sky, and touched the ice-cold window glass. Real sensations, all of them. She wondered how dreams managed to deceive her every time. I mean, they were so blatantly dreams in retrospect, the fake stimuli so dim and shallow. She caressed Tim's head, his short fur, his wet nose, his whiskers. It was all too complex to be fabricated. How do you stay sane, Tim? She asked him. Tim whimpered, Oliver twisting his pale blue eyes. Let me reread that. I'm noticing that Cantero has some fun with language, which I appreciate, for I too love, I love me a good compound word or two. I'm just a little, when there's no hyphen acknowledging <laughs> the compoundness, uh, I get a little thrown here. Tim whimpered. Oliver twisting his pale blue eyes. Carrie gave him a flirt-acknowledging smirk and allowed him to hop inside the Spartan cast-iron-framed bed. She sat against the wall, flipped through the dozen books on the solitary shelf, opened one paperback and retrieved the newspaper clip. The teen sleuths grinned back at her across 13 years from the sunny grayscale shores of Sleepy Lake, 1977. And then we change to another point of view uh, where we actually are through the use of dialogue understanding what happened to the gang at least to a degree from one other character's knowledge do you still see them asked the shrink nate crash landed on the armchair opposite threw back a dehydrated stare your friends i mean dr willett clarified are you still in contact with them Nate, Nate took a drag of his cigarette, clutched between Band-Aid-wrapped fingertips, stalling for the end of the session. My cousin Carrie calls from time to time. She went to study biology in New York, and she stayed there. I see her once or twice a year. Her mom still breeds Weimaraners. I, there must be a simpler way. I'm not thinking of saying that. Back in Portland. And he just left. At 16 or so, she threw a backpack over her shoulder, left home, and jumped on a train to, I, I don't know, find herself or whatever. She was always the complex one. I think she calls Carrie sometimes or sends her postcards. Peter was the golden boy. He stayed in California to finish high school, and he planned to attend the Air Force Academy, follow Captain Al's steps. And then at 16, he got discovered by a casting agent. He did movies. Became a big star. He snorted put out the cigarette, and dropped the tone of his voice. Then he overdosed on pills and died in a hotel room in L.A. 
In another city, in another state, Carey stroked the pulp-quality paper in which the Pennaquick Telegraph was printed. Its pores, the jagged edges of the page, real sensations like this cold room and the coarse army blanket and Tim's ears brushing her thighs. This did happen. This piece of paper says it. Teen sleuths unmask Sleepy Lake Monster. Uncover criminal plot. Haunting debunked. We did it. Do you miss them? Dr. Willett prompted. Nate gazed at the window. It was March, but still winter. That's what the last 13 years had been. A very long winter. Nah, he said. We were kids. Childhood friends don't last forever. I mean, who holds on to the past for that long? Now, here's something I don't understand. As a writer, and it confuses me as a reader, I mean, there's space breaks from one point of view to the next, except for that paragraph here on this page about Nate saying what happened, that Peter overdosed, and then in another city, another state. We shift to Carrie's point of view, even though we're still in t Nate's scene. And then we go right back to Dr. Willett after that paragraph without a space break either. And it visual visually, as I look at this page, that means that Carrie would be there. She's not. She's in a separate point of view, a separate location. So why on earth they don't have that separated out with space breaks? I don't know. That is strange. I do not understand that. Because we have another space break here on the next page, moving from, um, from Nate to another point of view. Um, and it's the criminal they caught. Ooh. We don't have a whole lot of time here. So let's see here. Um, for the sake of time, let me move to ooh, page eight. The criminal that they have put away is out on parole and someone finds him. We discover it's another member of the gang. So life out of prison is full of easily overlooked luxuries, such as using a public urinal without having to check your back. He smiled at that adage as it shaped in his mind and took pleasure in reading the ageless poetry scribbled on the tiles and trying to aim at the little pink spongy cube near the drain. 13 goddamn years, he was free. Without the warning of a toilet flush, the door to the stall behind him slammed open. Good morning, Mr. Winkley, Mr. Wickley. He knew then by the sudden suspension of all lower bodily functions that his subconscious mind had recognized the voice, even 13 years and a puberty later. He spun on his feet and corrected his visual line upward and choked at the face of the bully confronting him, the dark browed figure filling and brimming over the ghostly contour of a smiling memory. Andrea, Andy Rodriguez, he blurted out. The woman blew a bang of black hair off her face. Andy. My name's Andy. I am not allowed to talk to you, he protested. I just got out of jail. 
Really? Me too, she said, checking her freebie Coca-Cola digital watch. They must have noticed by now. He tried to sidestep her. She blocked his way. Wickley quivered, his fortitude crumbling at the sight of his own hands, surrendering to shakes. I did my time, he whimpered. I paid my debt to society. Hell yeah, you paid it, and with interest. Explain that to me. Thirteen years in a high-security prison with no visitors. For what? For putting on a costume and chasing kids around a tumble-down house? Are you kidding me? I kidnapped one of you. Please. I staged a haunting. I made an elaborate scheme for fraud. You are the fraud, Wickley. You're nothing but a careless gold digger. You want me to believe you went to all that trouble just to scare people? The mystic symbols? The dead animals? They were props. The hanged corpses? The things in the basement? All props. Steven fucking Spielberg could not have made props like that, and you know it. It wasn't you. It was, and I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you met- Liar! She clutched his neck and shoved him into the wall, shattering some tiles with the back of his head. One of the baseball talkers entered the restroom at that moment and stopped dead at the sight. On the left, standing, Andrea Andy Rodriguez, 25, in big military boots and a white tank top, turns to camera as she lifts a squirming old man two inches off the floor. Fuck off, she growled, and the intruder obediently retreated. Wickley was gagging, writhing, kicking in the air. Andy turned back to him, face slashed by the obstinate bang of hair, a furious and not fully devoid of self-satisfaction smile in her lips. I was 12 years old in 77, and I beat you. Now I'm 25, and you're old and weak. Just imagine the ways in which I can humiliate you. Tell me, why did you confess? I, I did it. Bullshit. Why did you take the blame? I did it. I made my costume out of a diving suit. It was a good costume. No, it wasn't really. I set everything up. I made the lights fade and the house shake. No, you fucking didn't. She slams him into the wall. I did, and you were terrified, sniggering in pain. You pissed your pants. That was Nate, not me, and it wasn't you. Why did you take the fall? Tell me, or I swear I'll throw you in my trunk, drive to Blighton Hills, and dump my car into Sleeping Lake. And now he starts saying a different language, and I know I'm out of time. But this language is nothing any normal tongue knows. And Andy releases him, and yeah, okay. I I gotta admit, this is this is fun because again, it's playing with that typical Scooby Doo episode of the costumed criminal making a big, scary, supernatural goings on that the hip teens are able to solve and, and save the day. And these first few pages, because what did I get into? I think about page eight. We are seeing that there, through the details of Andy's confrontation with Mr. Wickley, there was far more to this haunted house than just some typical guy in a costume running around. There was something seriously wrong. And we see and can believe Andy, though she sounds off her rocker, accusing him like this. And yet from our interactions with the other 
characters of Nate and Carrie, we know something horrifying happened to leave those other two so traumatized and so apart. So there has to be some level of truth in Andy's details. But we would have to read on to find out. Oh, I'm drinking this cup. I, I'm drinking the whole flipping pot. I, I'm the take on the pot and I'm not going to let anybody take it away. <laughs> so this is a fun way to start Private Eye July. Wee-hoo! And I hope you enjoy discovering some mysteries in the fantastical world around you. Read on, share on, and write on, my friends. Cheers.